Welcome to Spend Wisely, a podcast brought to you by Lola.com, bringing you insights from finance leaders you can act on today. I'm your host, Sagar Velagala. Today's guest is our very own Rebecca Morrison, VP of Finance and Operations at Lola.com. So I've known you for a while, but the thing that I find really interesting is your career background. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about it. I think you started off at some pretty big global companies, the biggest one being RSA for about five years in the finance department, and then moved over to operations at HubSpot and then back to finance at small companies. So I'd love to hear about why you did that and what do you think you've learned through that whole process? Sure, happy to. So yeah, so I started my career at EMC, actually worked there for about four years, started in credit and collections, battling for dollars. So that was, that was, you learn a lot. And then I actually moved over to RSA. They had recently acquired RSA while I was there. And so I was more of like in a FP&A role there, started to kind of delve into operations. That's when I realized like, okay, I, I like more than just you know, the month close number crunching process. Like I actually like kind of being part of the business. And so I think I really picked that up when I moved over to Asia and supported the the Asia Pacific team. And that's when I really owned both finance and operations. And I, and I really, really enjoyed that piece. Moved back to the US and shortly thereafter moved to HubSpot. Went to HubSpot because a former colleague from RSA recruited me over. And that's when I kind of got the taste of working for a much smaller company. At the time, HubSpot was only about 600-ish employees. And I remember having a conversation with my boss before I even joined, which was, I'm out of finance at this point. Like, I don't really want to go back into finance. I'm on the operations side. I really like it. And he's like, ah, just come check it out, whatever. And so when I moved over to HubSpot, I, I actually joined an FP&A capacity was there for two and a half years, but we always knew that my plan was ultimately get over to the the operations side. And so after about two and a half years, I moved over to sales ops and strategy. And that's where I was for about another two, two plus years. That's when I really learned, like I'd always been a business partner, but it was really in that sales ops strategy role where you actually like are part of running the business, which, which was really interesting. How did that play out exactly? Like, what was the difference? I, so you, at HubSpot, you worked with the sales team, both from a finance capacity and then literally in the sales operations team. Yeah, it's different because when you're, in, when you're in finance, you're really only working with like, you know, the VP, right? You're working with the head of the, the function. You're not really like in the weeds and you're more just kind of like, you know, here's how you're doing in your expenses. <laughs> and like, let's talk about that. We, we talked about like productivity per rep and stuff. And so I was tackling it more from a, financial perspective, like how do we increase it and things like that. Really on the operations side, I was more involved with like pulling the different levers to drive PPR, right? Like, you know, where do we add heads so that we can further accelerate the business, things like that. Those were things that you didn't really get to do on the on the finance side. You do it much more higher level, whereas we're in the sales ops side, you really got to dig into into the weeds and look at like what segment of the business do you want to grow? Like where do you think there's the best opportunity? All that kind of stuff. Interesting. So in the finance role, you really don't have visibility into all those details. The VP of sales may know that they can increase the headcount in the small business team by X percent and hit their overall goal. And all the finance team knows is the overall goal. Like great, you have a plan. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't really even know if the finance team kind of cares that much, right? They know that they want it to growth to be 30% year over year. And like, that's what we're expecting you to hit. They don't necessarily care how you get there. 
Interesting, interesting. I guess that translated really well to working at smaller companies because then I'm guessing the finance team, usually like one person, is way more plugged into the business or has to be, right? For sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so basically the transition from HubSpot to much smaller was HubSpot actually just kind of got too big for me and I didn't really feel like I was making a difference. I think when I left, there was about 2,000 employees and I ultimately joined a company. There was about 50 people when I started. And, you know, now I've kind of settled into that like 50 to 100 employee kind of sweet spot. I really like it because I feel like I'm actually having an impact. You're super involved in the business. So that gap that we talked about in between finance and operations doesn't really exist anymore because you see it, you're involved with it, you you know the details of the operations so you can have it translate on the finance side. Interesting. So I think there's like a, a bit of a split in what kind of CFO companies hire, even startups. Like some people hire like people with accounting backgrounds and then other people hire like more operational backgrounds like yours. Why would you go the other route? Why would you bring in someone with like an accounting background? It depends. Like everyone is unique, right? And if I look at like my husband, you know, he is an accountant and he's been able to make that transition to become more of like on the FPNA, the operations side, right? Like he understands the business. There are people out there that have the more technical accounting skills and can easily translate over into that fluffy finance world where things don't always have to tick and tie, right? Where you can think a little bit more forward thinking. And then there's some that just don't, right? And those are the people that are going to sit in that, you know, that controller, like that's their realm. Gotcha. So let's talk about what finance looks like at Lola. What is the finance team responsible for? The standard finance stuff, right? So we're responsible for closing the books and making sure that the numbers are accurate, budgets, forecasts, any sort of board reporting. We do own like company-wide reporting as well. So we do the, the, the metrics, we handle the audit, all that kind of stuff. Heavily involved in like setting the plans, right? So like we don't really have an operations siloed department. So kind of we we act as sales ops, if you will, in terms of like when we set the plan, we're looking at, you know, the lead flow and like the opportunity. Whereas I feel, I guess that's one distinction is in prior roles, when you were in finance, you set the plan. It was more of like a tops down, tops down approach, right? You would just look at like, what do you want your year over year growth to be? What are you, the key metrics you want? And you set a plan based on that. Whereas the operations team tends to kind of do all the details of bottoms up planning to see to make sure that you can actually get there. And because our team is small and lean, we kind of own that that full gamut at Lola. I know at Medaxo, you also own stuff outside of finance and analytics. You also own like all of GNA. Do you think that's like the future for CFOs or is that something that <laughs> is going to go away? It's interesting. Again, I think it all comes down to the size of the company, but typically just the nature of the skill set of a finance professional, right? Being very, tend to be rule followers, right? Like have to be structured, have to be, you know, they tend to think operationally. That suits well for some of like the standard back office type of functions such as HR, right? Like there's a ton of HR policies that you kind of have to follow. So that kind of naturally could fit into, into finance, and then, you know, you got legal, again, tons of <laughs> structure, policies, that kind of stuff. So I think the skill set matches, like you'd give that, you tend to give that responsibility to someone in like finance and you would say in sales. The one I'd say is maybe like recruiting and culture, like those specific aspects of HR. But usually when you're at a smaller company, you're only really having like one person kind of own all that stuff. So it, it kind of naturally 
I think can fit. But as you get bigger, you, you definitely need to start specializing because as we learned real quick, the finance person does not know a ton about HR. <laughs> so it's more of like an intersection of limited resources and just skill set. Like sure. the person you want to hire for the CFO thinks the way that you want them to for GNA. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Well, let's talk about what's been going on with Lola and how things have changed for you and finance in more detail. What's in your mind right now from where we're standing today and what's going to go on over the next three months? Like, what are your priorities? How are you thinking? Like, what are you thinking about? Yeah. So obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic and that hasn't <laughs> bode well for a travel startup. So for us, like we're really focused on the next big thing, which is spend management. And so for me, in terms of my priorities, it's really, well, it's twofold, right? Because I feel like I'm acting as a potential customer, right? So I've got my hat of a, like a customer hat. And then I've got like the, you know, VP of finance at a spend management company, right? And so if we talk about my customer hat, I really just want to make sure the team is building the best product that will meet effectively my needs, right? And so I've been partnering really closely with with the product team on design, on like all on the roadmap to make sure that they're developing the features and functionality that we need to be successful in the market. So that's like a huge priority for me, making sure that I can scale up the company as much as possible, or I can share my knowledge with the company as much as possible. Because frankly, I'm really the only one here who understands the the finance persona, or there's very few people at the company that like truly, truly understand the the finance persona, and at least the day to day. And then, you know, from me as a VP of finance at a spend management company, or even just a VP of finance at a company, right? Like in these times, I want to make sure that we're starting to think through like pricing and packaging of this new offering. What could financial plans look like for next year? How do we factor in the impact of COVID with travel? Because we still have a travel product. So like, how do you, how do we think about spend and how that fits in with travel and like how we package? And there's just like a lot of financial stuff. Like I, I don't even really know how to think about a budget for next year at this point, but like I've got to wrap my head around that in the next couple months. The idea of finance being really heavily involved in the design of a product is super interesting and unique, I think. There are going to be a lot of companies that are popping up, and a lot of them, their CFO is going to be the product expert. So what have you learned in like interacting with the product team? How has that gone? What's your process? <laughs> First of all, it's been awesome. Working at a, a travel startup in, in a, a global pandemic, which has ceased travel, makes my job not so fun at this point. Like business has obviously slowed. So to be able to have something else to focus on has been pretty awesome. Really enjoyed that experience. I think that the weirdest thing I'd say is in finance, you're typically, you're just back office, right? And a lot of times that's exactly how you're looked upon, right? And you don't really necessarily have, you're kind of just like, there, maybe you're considered to be the wet blanket. It's not the most glamorous role, right? And so to actually be able to work with the product team and have them generally interested in every single thing you're saying, and I've learned a ton. I I have no idea how like you go into product, right? And so how you build it. I think some things that's been super interesting to me is when we talk about all the features and functionality that's required and then watching the team take what I'm saying and figuring out how they're going to 
what feature and functionality they're going to roll out in alpha versus beta versus like how they can determine like what is what's needed and for when. Like that's been an interesting process. Sitting involved, sitting in UX or design meetings where people are arguing over what icon to use. It's just something that you don't think about, right? Like you don't think that there could be a an argument over whether we're going to use like a circular thing or like, like the number of conversations I've been in about icons has been, it's been a lot. So it's, it's just been interesting. Holy world, especially for finance. Like we are, des- I feel like the design decisions you make in finance or what color is the cell or do I hide? Totally. Like, yeah. 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 Well, and also too, like, I think (laughs) the thing I've been trying to articulate is like, hey, you guys are building this for the finance persona. We're used to living in Excel. Like, you don't need to make it like super bells and whistles. Like, don't think about this. Like, I don't know. We want to build a better Excel. Don't get me wrong. Right. But like, it's just been an interesting thing to be like, well, yeah, finance people are going to kind of think about it this way or or they're not going to really care. Like, like I just had a conversation about notifications or tasks, like a notifications and tasks. And they showed me two different designs. And I was like, the tasks need to be like in a very clear, succinct, like list view. Like it, it must look like that. It can't be in these like big bubbles and like, it needs to be tight. It needs to look like a checklist. <laughs> and like, So all that stuff is just so different to me. It makes the days interesting for sure. Let's talk through the details of like pricing then. Like how do you start to think about pricing for a new product? So actually in this case, we didn't think about pricing. We're, we're really focused on packaging right now. <laughs> like we're, we're actually most focused on what are we going to offer? How are we going to gate it? If we are going to gate it, we got to nail that first before we put a number to anything. And I mean, yes, we want to be profitable, right? Like you think about your unit economics and making sure that you're profitable per unit, but there's an element at the beginning, kind of doesn't matter. You just want to gain traction. You want to get customers. And so you're a little bit kind of taking a stab at like what you think a good price could be, but you're probably undershooting or I would recommend undershooting at first, at least. I don't know. It feels a little bit like a finger in the ear type of thing, to be honest with you. That's super interesting to hear a finance person say about pricing, right? But I think it makes a ton of sense. If you're trying, like, you can't sell a product for any price if people aren't willing to buy it. And the key to that is the packaging side of it, right? So maybe let's talk about that. How are you, how are you approaching packaging? What are some of the variables that are going in through your head? Yeah, so there's a competitive landscape out there, right? And so there's two different so, so we're obviously looking at like how the competitors are priced and so and, and packaged. And there definitely is a need for there to be a free offering, right? And so thinking about what would be the feature and functionality that we would put in our free offering and what we would what we would want customers have to pay for, right? And start and really started to think about it from that perspective. And so that's really, but so I've been kind of leading the charge, but I've been working closely with Tony and product and Ryan and sales and Mike, the CEO, I've been working really closely with them on just the approach to doing that. And I'd say we're pretty close to getting it, to getting it locked down. But what's interesting is like, again, this is new, never really thought about it, but like Tony, the head of product has to sign off of that and that he has to put that into the roadmap to, for the the team to actually develop, right? Because so say you you have a product that you're going to gate a bunch of stuff 
right? Or you're going to have it so that maybe everyone gets access to the, the whole thing, but it's their usage is capped, right? And if they want to unlock some more usage, they could, you know, maybe they could just click a button that says, you know, upgrade, or maybe they have to go talk to sales or whatever, but all that stuff has to be designed by the engineers in the product to like, to turn it on or turn it off and never really thought about that before. So I was like, oh, I can just do this thing by myself and then I'll just tell people what it should be and we can roll it out. And it's like, oh, no, no, <laughs> the engineers have to build this thing. <laughs> so It's a good thing you got that operations background then. I, I can't imagine someone that has never had to like work in the details like that. It's so hard to be a business partner unless you've like had some experience doing it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's been that that's also been that was a little eye opening this time. I was I was like, oh, I thought I just like put a number to things and we're, we're done. But <laughs> nope. <laughs> That's a really interesting thread. So in order to be profitable, you need to have the right prices. But before you have the right prices, you need to have the right packaging so people will actually buy it. And in order to have the right packaging, you need to coordinate with almost every aspect of the business, especially if you have like a product-led freemium model. Mm-hmm. So you have a very deep understanding of like everything. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's been... Um... It's been way more of an involved product or project than I than I thought it was going to be, but it's been interesting nonetheless. So awesome! Now I can see why you barely have time for budgets. <laughs> <laughs> kind of curious how you're thinking about annual planning at a small company in the middle of you know coming off of a pandemic and trying to launch a new product. Q4 is focused really on getting you know those those beta customers up and running and really hopefully getting a sense of like what a good fit customer looks like and someone we might want to model the financials off of. We'll come up with a loose revenue plan for next year, but I'm also really focused on like making sure that we don't go off the rails with spending. But so do I think I'm going to come up with like this super comprehensive plan for next year? No, we'll probably make a six-month revenue. So if I were to try to summarize... If you're a company that is early stage or trying to pivot, your number one priority is figuring out who that ideal customer is and getting actual data. 100%. Yep. Use the product and how much they spend. Then you can start building a real revenue model. But even then, the revenue is just guidance. More important is probably managing your existing cash and making sure you have enough, you control burn enough so you have enough runway. Right. And the revenue is just sort of like a forecast. You're hoping it'll change all the time. For sure. If we weren't doing any of this and we were to still travel at Lola, how I would be thinking about next year would be really, really focused on controlling burn and as just assuming like yet another slow 12 months of travel. You know, I would probably be like modeling some uptick later in the half, but, but definitely not to like where extent of where we were, but I feel like in another line of business, you, you could build a, an annual plan for next year, no problem. It's just with the pivot, it's it's kind of hard. Yeah. this is It's really interesting because it's so different than what I remember experiencing at HubSpot. Oh, because they had such the regimented close process. I mean, planning process. God, you remember that? I had the calendar. Yeah. I like Maybe I was just really stressed out and I don't remember all the details, but I just remember finance came down with a revenue number. Of the, sales the tablets company. of revenue. <laughs> yeah. And then Hunter played a little bit of like a game to try to like, you know, lower expectations and it kind of went back and forth like that. So right now what you're in charge of is both the top down and the bottom up. Yep. Maybe talk through like how that's different to bigger company where you don't have control over both sides of it. 
when you were in sales ops and you got the top down number from finance, what did you focus on then? I was focused on whether it was realistic or not, right? I was focused on building the, so for me, I was, I was a little bit more siloed where I was focused specifically on building the resource plan to get us there, right? And then there was other people who were focused on, do we have enough lead flow? <laughs> like what, what does the demand equation need to look like to get us there? So, I mean, it, we were so big at that point that you, you had people focus on all these different things. Like in a smaller company, you kind of own the, the, whole, the whole thing. And even if I think about what we did last year was we were focused on the demand side and then we were thinking about resourcing last. Whereas I feel like at HubSpot, we couldn't wait for the demand equation to be done. We were like, here's a revenue that, that finance gave us. So in order to hit this revenue, this is how many heads we needed. And then it was almost like a, a negotiation between marketing and sales about, well, if this is how many heads we have, this is how many leads we need. And then marketing was like, well, I can't deliver that many leads. And so, yeah, it was kind of like negotiation all throughout the organization. I bet at some point marketing said, well, if I'm going to hit this many more leads, I need this much more budget. Oh, you know that, that that other conversation was definitely happening but with someone else for sure. But yeah, I think um, it's just different. Like it, there's less people involved. So in theory, it should be more efficient because right? you've got less... You just got less people involved. So hopefully it should be more efficient. But when you get a top-down revenue goal from finance, what are the levers that you can pull on the sales side? Like how does that model work? In terms of like what sales can actually control, it's productivity. So PPR, which stands for productivity per rep, and you can control headcount. And in a way that is somewhat dictated by finance as well, because they will like they won't tell you whether you have too many heads or not and whether that fits into your expense budget. But if we're thinking just about in terms of revenue, so if they handed us a plan, we would sit there and what we would do is we would basically build a, a bottoms up capacity model, if you will, right? And so we would we would literally list out every single rep and we would list out like what we think their productivity would be or what, what the productivity was on average. And you'd basically calculate out what you think the revenue was and you would add your net new heads and you'd also like factor in attrition and all that kind of stuff because obviously attrition impacts overall productivity as well. And hopefully you would, you could then settle on a number. And then once you did that, we kind of had to build a more detailed plan, which would actually listed out every single person. Then you got to figure out what the quota is, right? Cause productivity does not actually translate into quota. So then you have to do like the quota modeling and the quota roll-up, which I know you're intimately acquainted with. So then we would do this quota roll-up model where you would list out every single person, what their assigned quota was. You would put in the net news. You'd put in the churns. We had to layer in vacation quota relief because we had this wonky thing at HubSpot. And what you'd want is you'd want to have enough quota coverage so that you could hit the financial targets. You never wanted to be under allocated because that means that the team would have to overachieve, excuse me, in order to hit the, the financial target. So, so yeah. I that was a bit of a philosophical decision, right? HubSpot had a culture of overachievement. And so they actively decided to have they did. quarters roll up lower than the revenue target. They did. And I thought it was an interesting play. And I actually think it was pretty successful, to be honest with you, because, because they built that culture of overachievement. I just think the team just was driven for success. Like there's something to be said about 
people rallying around 110% attainment versus, you know, setting a plan where people just hit 70. Like that's kind of demotivating, right? Yeah. I don't know. This could be a whole other conversation. I, let's go for it. Because I, I always, I think this is like a super interesting intersection between numbers and finance and like very technical stuff like that and culture. Yeah. Finance can set a goal, but the way that you set individual goals dictates the culture of the sales team. For sure. Like at HubSpot, we had a clear culture of overachievement. But at Medaxo, mm. we had the opposite, where it was actually most traditional companies do it yeah, this correct. way, right? Where is significantly higher than the revenue. Yep. And management thinks of it as a buffer, yep. right? Protect themselves and the company's buffer. Yep, yep, yep. Well, and the interesting thing too was like HubSpot's play was, hey, we're not going to pay you. We're going to pay you slightly below market, but you're also going to like absolutely crush it when you hear like you're going to hit 110% in your number on average. So like we're going to pay your, your base is going to be a little bit lower t- to market, but like you could go get a job at Oracle or whatever. And you know, your OTE could be quoted at 300 K, but like you're only going to be expected to hit 60% of your number. So you're actually never really going to get to that, to that OTE. I remember having those conversations too, when I was working closely with like the recruiting team and stuff like that. So that was like a whole other whole other thing. But I don't know, the finance team at HubSpot was on board with it too. I think there's a healthy balance, right? Like what is that percentage overachievement? Can you build enough? You always want to be making sure you're not like completely overpaying for performance, right? Like, I mean, but HubSpot was willing to overpay a bit for the standard performance, but there's definitely a balance. Like I remember, I remember more on the finance side, we would look to see like what average achievement was. We would look to see what average attainment, what percent of reps were hitting and things like that. And we would always be paying attention to that kind of stuff. You know, who was, how many people were getting accelerators or the accelerators on average, right? Like even though finance wasn't responsible for setting the quotas, they definitely had a seat at the table for like ultimate sign off on the quotas because they wanted to make sure that we weren't just going to be basically like printing money for the sales team. Right. The compensation would still have to be in line. So it, it turns into much more of a psychological thing if you keep the, you can structure sales compensation in a way where you would end up actually spending the same amount on a sales rep OTE if they're overachieving. And you can structure it differently if they were, you know, at 60% of quota and still pay them the same amount. For sure. Right? For sure. Yeah. Which direction do you lean? Like if. Oh, I'm definitely overachieving. <laughs> You're always never achieving I think so, because I, I mean, I think there's a balance, right? But there's just like this feeling of winning that permeates the organization, right? Like think about like the daily waterfalls that would go out, right? Like everyone would be jazzed about those. Think about the waterfalls we sent out at McDaxo when like, God, I remember that was even quarterly. We would be like two months out of the, the quarter, like there would be nothing. And you're just like, wow, that's pretty demoralizing. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm on the same page as you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Spend Wisely, brought to you by Lola.com.